calculated risk. It's a thing. Sometimes, I mean, we make decisions that appear to be the best in the moment for what we desire the outcome to be. Sometimes they work out. Sometimes they don't. I, myself, Bob Schmidt, Fear the Fro host, I was traveling last week. I had to go to, uh, well, I was out in Los Angeles for a stretch of time doing some opening day baseball work. And I was on a flight to return home on Friday, at which point I had a decision to make. I was flying. I was stopping in Denver. So on the way to Denver, I was standing behind a woman on the line to get on the plane. We were doing the Southwest cattle call. And the woman in front of me, delightful lady, but a a very large woman. And as we got onto the plane, I saw her ask the flight attendant for one of the seatbelt extenders. So this was my thinking, calculated risk on my part. Now, I, like everyone else in the history of air transit, do the same thing, which is when you get an aisle seat and somebody's in a window seat, you just hope. You pray and you hope that the people who board the plane after you will not sit in the middle. So I achieve this measure through a couple of ways. Now, left to my own devices, where everybody sitting on the plane is equal in seating appeal. I don't know how to put that better without sounding like some fat phobe asshole. But what I like to do is mad dog people. Now, I know there are different trains of thought in terms of Do you make eye contact with people? Do you not make eye contact with people? I stare blatantly at everyone, and I don't break eye contact. And I have found that that works for me. Maybe people look at me and just say, any other person, please. But that, combined with what transpired on Friday, I thought it was foolproof. Because this woman and I had a pleasant conversation, and also, if I'm being totally honest, because I assumed... Nobody would want to take the middle seat. I followed her. And where she sat down and took the window seat, I took the aisle seat on the very same row. Calculated risk. Now, it could work out one of two ways. It could work out how I expected it to work out, which is that people would look at our row. They would see me, creepy-looking gentleman. They would see her, delightful but larger woman. And they would say, I don't want to sit in the middle between these people. But instead, what happened was the worst possible outcome, which is that the flight turned out to be 100% full. And my choice in the moment, now I had other options. I could have taken other aisle seats, but I thought the best chance of getting a vacant middle seat was the course I took, and it was not. So in the end, I had a man essentially sitting in my lap because, you know, they couldn't bring the arms down and everybody kind of just slid over to the right. And then my leg was kind of tucked under the arm out into the aisle, calculated risk, blown up in my face. But it's probably what I deserved for profiling a larger woman. So then I get to the airport in Denver, only to find out. Now, I saw the whole first half of the Cavs-Knicks game at the airport. Then I flew to Denver. By the time I got off the plane, the second half had transpired, and I saw what had happened. Now, I watched back the game, of course, to see how exactly it got away from us. In the second half, I have some thoughts on that. But to speak to calculated risk, Lamar Stevens on Jalen Brunson, that was a calculated risk. No Jared Allen, no Recoro, not a lot of good options. Neto probably fared the best of all. And Lamar Stevens, what a horrific night, start to finish. First, getting cooked by Jalen Brunson. And then 
in the fourth quarter to just get blocked and stripped again and again and again by Isaiah Hartenstein. Jesus Christ, man could not catch a break and the Cavaliers fall to the Knicks. But let's get into this podcast, shall we? Welcome to Fear the Fro, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is, my favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Yeah! Yeah! Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. Okay, so we got two games to discuss. I've already alluded to the next one. I'm just going to touch on a few things here because I don't think... It does anyone any service. It doesn't help positivity. It doesn't really give you a good look at what's going to happen as we head into the postseason, knowing that both Jared Allen and Isaac Okoro were out. And on the other end of things, Julius Randle was out. So this lineup that the Cavs and Knicks rolled out on Friday, certainly not one that we can expect to see. Hopefully. I mean, fingers crossed. Jared Allen's back. Okoro will be back soon. And in the meantime, what we took away from this game was a couple of things. First, The struggles that Jalen Brunson had coming into the evening against the Cavs were well noted. He was considerably off his season averages. An immaculate season by Jalen Brunson, taking nothing away from him. But with Okoro in the lineup, this was a man who had much worse shooting splits, dropping from closer to 50-40 down to about 40-30 with Isaac Okoro on him and scoring less than 20 points a game. So considerably more difficulty against the Cavs than a lot of teams when the Cavs have been at full strength. But in this game, in a game hamstrung by injuries, what we got to see was the profound effect of not having both Jared Allen and Isaac Okoro in the lineup. Now, this was a first quarter for the ages, and not just for the Knicks, for the Cavs as well. 17 for 23 from the floor for the Cavs, 74% shooting, 75% from outside the arc. Only one turnover and 47 points. That is their highest scoring quarter this season. 44 was the previous high. So the Cavaliers, an incredible quarter by any account, and they ended the first quarter in the lead. But that is where things started to go wrong. And what started as a trickle of mistakes that directly kind of relate to Jared Allen and Isaac Okora's presence. Now, we saw Brunson explode in the first quarter for 21 points of his own. And in this game, when all was said and done, he scored 48 points. He did it very efficiently, shot over 50% from the floor, took an incredible 32 attempts. And with a hot hand, that's completely understandable. But to nearly have a double-double, he finished with nine assists, and to make seven three-pointers, just an incredible game from Brunson. Also, not to be overlooked, is that Donovan Mitchell continues to cook. Now, I'll get into this when I dive into the Pacers portion of it. But in the month of March, Donovan Mitchell finished sixth in the NBA in points per game, trailing only the five guys that I'm about to mention, Shea, Embiid, and Lillard. All of those guys shooting 12 free throws a game. Then Booker, Tatum, and finally Mitchell. Now, Mitchell scoring 30.6 points per game to 33.5 for Shea. If Mitchell went to the line anywhere near as much as any of the guys above him, nobody above him averages below eight free throws a game during the month of March. But Mitchell did all that, 31 points a game on only five and a half free throw attempts versus 12 
for all of those first three I mentioned, Shea, Embiid, and Lillard, and Lillard basically in a shutdown mode. He only played 10 games in March to Mitchell and these other guys logging closer to 15. So an incredible month in March, and over the last three games, Mitchell has gotten even better. In these last three games, including the Pacers game last evening, Mitchell is now averaging 42 points, five rebounds, and four assists on an insane 56-47 split. That's almost 70% true shooting percentage, 68.2%. So Mitchell getting absolutely scorching hot at the right time. All of these conversations about all NBA, I don't know how anyone can seriously say with a straight face that James Harden or Jalen Brown or De'Aaron Fox should be above Donovan Mitchell in this discussion. All of those guys, arguably, are not even the best players on their team. And if you're having that conversation, if you're debating, it's the same problem with people who say, well, Mobley's not it because we don't even know if he's better than Allen. Now, I think all of us as Cavs fans say Mobley's the more impactful defender. But if he's going to be dragged down by having greatness alongside him, and this will be my first reference to the importance of Jared Allen, this podcast, then why isn't the same being held true for Jalen Brown, James Harden, or De'Aaron Fox, who are playing with other guys who are either first-team All-NBA or, in the case of Sabonis, just a victim of the fact that there's some truly MVP-level centers out there this season. So yes, I am begging all Cavalier fans who give a shit to get out there and tout the fact that Donovan Mitchell is a goddamn monster right now. I can't sit back and listen to any more of this bullshit about, well, Jalen Brunson's having the same season as Don... No, he's not. He's not having the same season as Donovan Mitchell. He's having an incredible season. He's an unbelievably efficient, smart, talented player. I always liked Brunson. In Dallas, I freely admit, last year, in the year where Mitchell freely admits he was terrible defensively in the playoffs, he was outplayed in the first round by Jalen Brunson. But that is a six-game sample. Donovan Mitchell's playoff resume cannot be questioned. Donovan Mitchell's overall resume cannot be questioned. Is Jalen Brunson emerging for the Knicks? Absolutely. And emerging isn't even fair. Any questions anyone had about his ability to be the leader of the team, the focal point of an offense, they are no more. He's that guy. But if you're going to sit here and tell me that because Jalen Brunson scored 48 points on Friday that now he's on Donovan Mitchell's level, get the fuck out of here. Donovan Mitchell has scored 30 points or more in the playoffs 19 times. Do you know how many playoff games he has? 39. 50% of every playoff game that he's taken the floor, he has dropped 30 points. He has two 50-point games. Do you know how many times Jalen Brunson has done it? Three times. And a lot of that is circumstance, playing alongside Luka. I get that. But maybe, maybe we should just step back and say, okay, a little less prisoner of the moment, and let's wait to see him do that when the Cavaliers have two of their three best defenders out there on the floor helping to slow him. Because Lamar Stevens did not do shit. I think we can all acknowledge that, well, I, well, we saw Dean Wade get the start against the Pacers. Is that a coincidence? No. That fourth quarter was horrific. If Boston was the apex of Lamar Stevens' fourth quarters, this Knicks' fourth quarter has to be amongst the worst of the season for Lamar Stevens. Now, to just to put a bow on this Donovan Mitchell stat thing. Do you know how they talk about protecting a trademark? How if you don't go and litigate and prevent people from just doing outlandish shit, eventually you lose the ability to do that. That's the same with this Donovan Mitchell debate. 
Cavs fans need to pick up the mantle and advocate for our own guys because the disrespect is palpable. With these three 40-point games, Donovan Mitchell has the third most 40-point games in the NBA this season. Dame has 15. Doncic has 14. And then Mitchell is right there, tied with Giannis, tied with Embiid. Two MVP first-team All-NBA locks. He has more than Tatum, an All-NBA first-team guy. He has double the number of 40-point games of Shea. And Shea is one of the only people who I would listen to a discussion that he should be first-team All-NBA. If you want to say, okay, it's Doncic and Shea, I'm okay with that. Because raw numbers is at least somewhat of a level playing field. It's not weighting the importance of clutch stats versus team success and all these arbitrary things which you can either choose to acknowledge matter or not. Now, I've always felt all NBA should be dictated heavily by individual numbers and that team success and some of those, you know, advanced stats like clutch performance, those should be used in tiebreaker scenarios. But I don't think we're in a tiebreaker scenario when it comes to Donovan Mitchell versus De'Aaron or Donovan Mitchell versus James Harden or Donovan Mitchell versus Jalen Brown. A lot of people, though, they make some distinction between the Oklahoma City Thunder, who are a losing basketball team, and the Portland Trailblazers, because they're separated by four and a half games. Lillard can't be considered, despite insane numbers, but the Oklahoma City Thunder, who may or may not make the play-in, somehow Shea should be considered. I don't totally understand that. That's just cherry-picking inferiority. Well, you're bad, but you're not quite bad enough. What? Where's the line there? They're a sub-500 team. It should apply to both of them if it applies to one of them. But I don't want to make this all-NBA all talk. This is I want to get to the Pacers game, but I just couldn't help myself because now Mitchell's getting it from two sides. He's getting it from the people who are slandering him about all-NBA resume, and then he's getting it from the Knicks fans who are still rationalizing not getting him. So they're cutting him down in the aftermath of this Brunson game, and I just, I just can't stand by while they get high off their own supply and just... Something had to be said. But this is a man who's just an insanely prolific scorer. And if there is a a saving grace to what we saw against the Knicks, it's that Donovan continues to cook. I attribute the loss to the Knicks to a couple of things. First, excellent support play, especially early in the game. From Grimes, from Josh Hart. Josh Hart finished the game a perfect four for four. What an addition for him. And I know we had long conversations about him. Man, very little is expected of him in terms of what he needs to contribute offensively, but a dogged defender, an excellent rebounder. And since joining the Knicks, he's shooting 57% from three-point land. It's small volume, but 22 games, that's not bad. I mean, if Isaac Okoro did that, I would remake Bohemian Rhapsody. And to throw out a perfect 11-7 and on 4-for-4 shooting with zero turnovers, solid work defensively. Nobody was slowing Donovan Mitchell, but he certainly made the guys work. And for Quentin Grimes to go out there and give you a quiet 14, but knocking a few triples, I thought a very good game for him. Now, RJ, not wonderful. But the second biggest factor here behind Jalen Brunson and why the Cavs lost is undoubtedly our inability to keep the Knicks off the glass. I thought both centers, Mitchell Robinson and Hartenstein, were fantastic. And nine offensive rebounds for Mitchell Robinson I mean, how many times have we had this conversation about somebody throwing out an insane offense? We just had it. When we played the Nets, I talked about De'Ron Sharp. He had a nine offensive rebound game. He had a fourth quarter where he had six offensive rebounds. And then Mitchell Robinson comes in here in a game that was still very close 
at halftime, and he gets five offensive rebounds in one quarter. He finished the night with nine. That is the most offensive rebounds against the Cavs this season tied with Sharp. Now, we've seen other guys have big games against the Cavs, specifically backup centers. We saw Hartenstein with a six offensive rebound game back in December. Charles Bassey with six. When we saw Zach Collins with six in the very same game. These backup centers having profound success against the Cavaliers, it's a frustrating trend. And Hartenstein, he's a very solid player, a exceptionally poor man's Evan Mobley in the sense that he can find others. And that while he does not necessarily have insane range, his ability to pass forces teams to respect him. And he he had a solid night last night. Or sorry, Friday night, rather. Eight rebounds, four assists, three blocks and two steals. Now, I had to look because I saw when I rewatched the second half after the game had ended that the fourth quarter was just a litany of Lamar Stevens getting stripped or blocked by Hartenstein and wailing for fouls that were not going to come. Just in the fourth quarter alone, Hartenstein had two blocks and a steal, all of them on Lamar Stevens. Now, Mitchell Robinson, nine offensive rebounds. That did not happen in earlier matchups against the Cavs. Yes, he is a prolific offensive rebounder, but he equaled the total of offensive rebounds he had in the previous two games that he played against the Cavs just in this one game. And now, guess who has accumulated the most offensive rebounds against the Cavs from a player? Which players in the NBA have logged the most over the course of the season? Well, number one and number two, Mitchell Robinson and Isaiah Hartenstein, respectively. And the Knicks, to their credit, they're an exceptional rebounding team. They're second in the NBA behind only the Milwaukee Bucks tied with the Grizzlies. So it was never going to be easy. But without Jared Allen, for those people who needed yet another reminder of how short-sighted it is to say, well, Evan Mobley's that guy. We don't need Allen. You do need Allen. You don't need Allen to carry the scoring load, but don't mistake that for not being important to winning. In games where Jared Allen scores just 15 points, a modest number, the Cavs are 25 and 6. Without Jared Allen, they have a losing record, now 6 and 7. You dumped Love, a very good rebounder. Dean Wade and Stevens, they're serviceable, but not against Mitchell Robinson. Did you see what happened in the third quarter when they tried to get by putting Stevens on Mitchell Robinson? He got five offensive rebounds. There's a reason for that. That's not a matchup that you can get by without Jared Allen. You can't get by without a Coro either. That'll be very difficult. And I got to say, I'm. it's making me a little nervous, the front office, the way that they're being pretty vague about a Coro's return. I'm just praying that he's back by the first round. But that's enough about the Knicks game. Let's transition into some conversation about what transpired last night with the Pacers. So we go into the game 13 and a half point favorites. We end up winning by 10, but it took us till late in the game to do it. If I said you can't take much from the Friday game against the Knicks, it would be disingenuous to say that you can take much from a game in which the Pacers didn't have Miles Turner, didn't have Tyrese Halliburton. They were starting Isaiah Jackson, Jordan Awara, uh, Andrew Nemhard, Benedict Matherin. Matherin was okay. Very efficient from the free throw line, but... He finished with five personal fouls, and in one stretch in the fourth quarter particularly, I was so pleased to see the Cavaliers force him into three offensive fouls just in the fourth quarter alone. He had a push-off on DG. He pulled Mitchell down from behind trying to call for the ball, and then he got called for a charge barreling into Levert. To top it off, Levert stuffed him. Two. He had two blocks late in the game in that fourth quarter and finished with three over the course of the game. A solid line, 15 points, a few rebounds, a few assists, three blocks, and a beautiful dime 
to Lamar Stevens at one point in this game where he drove into the lane, did a little look away, dropped it off to Stevens, driving towards the rim who converted the bucket. It was a very good game for Karis LeVert. Evan Mobley, let's talk about our boy Evan because boy did he start out rough. He started out three for 13. He was missing a lot of stuff. He had a shot sent back by Isaiah Jackson. Just a lot of things weren't falling. A couple of hooks off the backboard that just were slightly too powerful. They rattled out. He got it going more as the game got later. He did most of his damage in the fourth quarter. But the line he finished with, very respectable. 14 points, 16 rebounds for Ev. And another four blocks. Evan Mobley's production as a rim protector continues to tick up, which is important as we head towards award season because we know that he's a deft rim protector, but sometimes without the the physical accumulating counting number, people overlook his ability on that end. And his best month to date in March with 31 blocks, first month averaging over two blocks a game. It's been a bit of a roller coaster if you look at Evan month to month as far as rim protection goes. I'll have a good month and then it'll it'll regress a bit and then it'll be even better than two months ago and then it'll regress a bit. It's been up and down, but it's up at the right time. And combined with Jared Allen's return, 15 points and seven boards for the fro, they got nine offensive rebounds collectively and won that battle tonight, which was important. Overall, good win. Expected win, but good win. And for the Pacers, who have the Cavaliers' first-round pick this season, to see us amongst the top five or six teams in the NBA. Certainly, probably not what they hoped, but definitely what I hoped. And now we just need to stay healthy, get to the postseason. One other thing I wanted to discuss on this show, though, was a new CBA has been agreed to by the players and the owners, and there are some changes that could prove to be relevant for the Cavaliers. Let's start with the big one that's being talked about, because I think it's essentially a non-story. The, the ability to have more than two rookie max guys. On your Now, everybody's talked about this since the Cavs acquired Donovan Mitchell. Well, you can only have two rookie max contracts on your books at once. And what about Evan Mobley? We've already got Garland and Mitchell. That was always a non-issue. Mitchell's deal was going to expire the summer in which we could put Evan Mobley on a rookie max extension. Wouldn't have been an issue. It was just a matter of when they signed the paperwork. But people, for whatever reason, they've really enjoyed running with that story. So yeah, if you care about when a guy signs a contract, then it's a win. Maybe it relieve some anxiety from fans who are worried that something could go wrong. But again, in restricted free agency, the Cavs were always going to match any type of max offer that he might get anyway. So it was a non-issue. Secondarily, though, to speak to restricted free agency, here are some rules that I did like that change. No longer do teams who give a restricted free agent an offer sheet. No longer do they have to wait two full days to see if a team will match. That waiting period has been lessened to 24 hours. That should encourage more teams to make offers on restricted free agents, which I think is good for the players. Now, I love when teams use the leverage of restricted free agency to retain guys at reasonable deals. However, that doesn't really happen with our front office. Our front office seems to extend guys early and, if anything, pay them more than some of us may have expected. I know there were people who, I shouldn't say there are people, I need to own this one. I felt like we didn't have to pay Jared Allen $20 million a season. I felt like we could have retained him for $15 mil a season because he was a restricted free agent. Now, I don't regret the signing. I love Jared Allen, hence the name of the podcast. But still, I'm never an advocate of paying more than you have to to retain a guy. So I think that's a good change. Secondly, there's going to be a new allowance for second-round picks, some sort of exception that can be used to retain guys that you drafted 
and developed without having to dip into your mid-level exception. I think that's great. I also love, you no longer have to give a rookie a max extension in order to be able to offer a fifth year. You'll now be able to offer a fifth year at lower monetary thresholds as well. So that's great news for those middle-of-the-range guys. If you decide you want to keep a Coro for five years at whatever his price point is, you can do it. You're not capped at four years simply because he's not getting a max. No longer are there positional designations for all NBA. And this season, if that was the case, we would certainly see Jokic and Embiid both on first-team All-NBA. They should be. In the future, that will be the case. If the five best players are front-court guys, well, then those five best players will be All-NBA, based on what's being reported. Now, let's speak specifically to the things that I don't like. There are severe limitations now for teams who go over the luxury tax apron. And I've seen a lot of Cavs fans say, well, this is good. This prevents teams from just spending insane amounts of money. But I would say the following. The Warriors just use the tools that everyone was allowed. If you take issue with the Warriors roster as it sits, your real issue is with the NBA for not doing any cap easing and just for dumping all that extra money on the market in the summer where Durant was a free agent. That changed the game. It essentially probably prevented the Cavs from two additional titles. But they never could have pulled that off if it weren't for the value contract that Curry was on due to signing it when he was having those injuries and the absolute perfect timing of when they would have that cap space. It's not that the Warriors did anything wrong with the Kevin Durant situation, but when Kevin Durant was leaving, they essentially just kept kicking that can down the road by trading for Russell and again getting Wiggins, being way, way over the cap, but they did it all legally. There's a lot of people who were upset by that, understandably. I didn't necessarily take issue with it because we saw how the Cavs operated with Dan Gilbert when we had LeBron. We used every legal means possible. Trading Ilgoskis to Washington. He got bought out. We brought him back. We did whatever we could to put the most talent around him. We traded for Brendan Haywood just because he had a contract which would allow us to kind of get around some rules. Same thing with J.R. Smith's non-guaranteed contract. We tried right until the end, after the chicken tortilla soup incident, to trade him under the premise of, well, this could help you save money because you can waive most of this contract. It's one of the last of its kind before the CBA change. All that stuff. We used all those to our full ability, and why shouldn't we? And why shouldn't the Warriors or the Clippers? The issue here is not that they spend tons of money. It's that most small markets don't have an owner like Dan Gilbert who will spend recklessly if he thinks a title is in sight. But don't kid yourself. If you believe this Cavaliers core is going to be a championship contender, then we will be a luxury tax team in the near future. Here's the teams that this these new rules would apply to if they were in effect this season. The Clippers, the Warriors, the Bucks, the Celtics, the Mavericks, and the Suns. All of them are more than $17.5 million over the tax apron. Now, the rules, as it would be if you go over that apron, you no longer have a taxpayer mid-level exception. So guys like Dante DiVincenzo, guys like John Wall, guys like Joe Ingles, they were all signed using that. None of those guys would have been added by those contending-level teams, the Warriors, the Clippers, the Bucks. You also can't trade first-round picks seven years away. Now, that's really a non-issue for us. Don't see how it's going to affect us, at least not any time in the short-term future. You can't sign buyouts. That is one thing a lot of these cap-strap teams hoping to vie for a title 
have done in the past. They've been big on the buyout market. So that would be taken away. And you cannot take more money back than you send out in any trade. Those are severe limitations. So for the Cavaliers, they need to make hay in these next couple of seasons because they're not projected to be over the tax apron next season, despite Garland's deal kicking in. And I'm saying that with the assumption that Levert gets somewhere between you know 15 and $18 million. I would expect that he'll fall in that range with the leverage he has. If we're lucky, it'll be less than that, but I wouldn't count on it. So in any case, they'll still have the Cavs will still have the ability to use the taxpayer mid-level exception. They'll still have the ability to sign buyouts next year. They can still take more money back than they send out in trades, but it's certainly something to monitor as we head into the future because by the time you get into a renegotiated Mitchell, a maxed Evan Mobley, Garland making full money. Jared Allen's not that far away from another deal, although I don't know what to expect in terms of how much the cap will jump. Here's another thing. Cap smoothing. No more Durant summer. If we want to be upset about a CBA, it should be the previous one because it probably cost the Cavs a chance at two more titles when Durant was able to just join the, the Warriors due to that massive cap leap. That won't happen anymore. Smoothing. So that's a good thing. So I like a lot of the changes. I really do. 65 game minimum was proposed for all NBA teams. I don't care about that, to be perfectly honest. I think it's not a bad policy. I think it would be nice if you could trust voters to just kind of police that themselves and say, okay, we should give a credit to a guy who plays 10 more games than someone else. That probably should matter. But a lot of times these legacy guys, the Curry guys, the all-time great level players, the LeBrons, they'll get a bump just on per-game production despite availability. I don't mind it. I don't mind any concept, even if it's something that people circumvent, even if it's, okay, a guy checks in, plays the jump ball, and then checks out of a game immediately. Maybe there'll be some of that. But any effort to try to curb guys sitting when they're perfectly healthy, I think is probably a good thing, regardless of who's responsible for that team or player or some combination of both. I do think I really enjoy some of the changes as it relates to the second round picks is if you if you're good at drafting and you're good at developing then this new CBA should be beneficial to you. So that's all for today's episode of the Fear the Fro podcast. I'm Bob Schmidt, voice of Fox Sports Radio, lifelong Cats fan. Please, if you like the pod, if you subscribe to the pod, well then you've done your part. You subscribe to the pod. But if you feel so inclined to leave a review, please do wherever you listen, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio etc. If you hear Cavs slander, if you hear Knicks fans getting overly confident, please send that my way. Bob at Fropod.com. I am amassing a library that I can only hope to do incredible things with. So I want you to be a part of it. I want you to feel, I will give you a, a producer credit. If this podcast is a fat lady on the airplane, I want you to be the seatbelt extender that brings it all together. So do your part. Bob at Fropod.com. We'll be back with another episode of the Fear the Fro podcast. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.